Good love our gracious queens are throughout their just queens. Their time has come. United Queendom. At United Queendom, we are huge fans of fat pigeon art. The work by Sid Spencer is frankly fantastic and the website is fatpigeon.uk so he does digital prints mugs t-shirts and so much more of your favorite drag queens or of celebrities or anyone you can think of from the uk and across the globe they donate a percentage of all profits back to the lgbtqia community in brighton and you our lovely listeners can get a 10% discount using the code uqdm22 on all merchandise Get involved, guys. Hello, everyone. It's me, Sam Dowler. No, it's not, is it? That was my Sam Dowler impression. I'm sorry about that. Um, I don't think Sam will hear it because he doesn't listen to the podcast unless he's on it. So that's all good. Um, I just wanted to let you know what this episode's about. So Fenton Bailey, if you don't know, if you don't know, you should know, because he is one of the men, him and his partner, Randy, who created Drag Race. Um, and not just Drag Race, also one of my favourite films ever, Party Monster, and The Eyes of Tammy Faye, the iconic uh, documentary, and many, many other things, many, many Emmys, many awards, um, a lot of money, I assume. Um, Yeah, and very influential, lovely man, and I got to have a chat with him. And this is the interview, and seen as though we've been so awful lately by announcing hiatuses and whatnot, um, we thought you deserved a little bonus that can give you a bonus um so enjoy united i'm so honored to be speaking to you thank you for speaking to me oh please it's a pleasure thank you Gosh. i thought you might have um your emmys in the in the background i know that would uh, they're downstairs in the kitchen <laughs> <laughs> do you often go and have a little look at them go and polish my emmys um <laughs> Well, they're just in the kitchen, so I see them every morning. So I guess that's my sort of motivation. <laughs> they're like up stacked with the cereal. <laughs> and, and what does it mean to you having awards like that? The the biggest awards you can get, really? Well, you know, I mean, it fills me with gratitude, really, to be honest. Um, I'm personally not that big on awards, but I feel that it's a recognition of, well, you know, Rue especially, and and also the, uh, also the queens um, of Drag Race. You know, I think at this point there's been 400 queens who've walked the runway, and without them and their talent and their brilliance, there wouldn't you know there wouldn't be a need for the show, and there wouldn't be a show. You know, so it I sort of have slight imposter syndrome when I look at them. You know, because well, they're not worthy. Yeah. As a super fan, I think. Um that drag race doesn't need awards but i think it means a lot for the gay community to be kind of centered in that way and winning the biggest awards so drag race represents us all in a way doesn't it so it does and i absolutely think that yes and i it always puts me i always go back in my mind to randy and i when we first met and hanging out at the pyramid and seeing the drag shows on stage there because that's really what inspired us and that at a very dark time, you know, New York City, AIDS, the early 80s, Reagan, you know, all that nonsense and tragedy. And yet on that tiny stage in the pyramid, the most amazing creative kind of punk drag shows and, you know, RuPaul, of course, and so many other queens um, we met there and then, and that, and that really got us through it. So 
it does it is a sort of brings joy to brings joy to the world sounds like a christmas greetings card but it does <laughs> so were you kind of um in the club kid scene would you have considered yourself a club kid would i would love that would be very flattered but actually <laughs> was slightly too old for that although we did know Rennie and i were quite quite good friends actually with michael alig um yeah. we would dj at dance Teria, and michael alig was a busboy so that's how we got to know him and watch as as kind of the club kids emerged as this well they went from being this sort of ultra fringe group to this national and international phenomena yeah oh god i, I mean it all went hideously awry you know as we know well, like now party monster is one of my favorite films of all time and i and i love the book as well and um yeah it's so just no matter how many times i watch it i still find it um funny horrific um engaging like spectacular it's just an incredible film isn't it is that one of your proud achievements oh, i love you for saying that thank you um yes although it was a sort of it was a it was weirdly received when we made it i think people thought we were like insane or something or or just somehow something about it but like people like it has a very devoted following that movie, but it also has people who like my dad saw it and was like, "WTF?" You know, I think it almost finished him off. Actually, rest in peace. <laughs> but you know, he, it, a lot of people are not fans of, of the movie. I think they misunderstood. I think they thought it was sort of um, glorifying, right? Yeah, I, I don't mean, understand how anyone would think that because if they have seen it to the end, but <laughs> exactly right. I wondered if I wasn't um, aware when it came out, I found it later, but I wondered if maybe the Macaulay Culkin's casting had kind of become distracting for people because that was his first role as a adult, wasn't it? It really was. He had no plans on returning to uh, acting after the Home Alone movies had made him, you know, the most famous child actor in the world. Ever. Did um, you who convinced him? We convinced him, I mean, naively, we wrote the part for him. Like it was him That's we were writing. That you would think of like, him. There was no one else we could imagine who could play him. I mean, he was he did it amazingly, but I never would have thought of him until seeing him do it. <laughs> he was so good. He was so good. Him and Seth. I mean, we had the most amazing cast, you know. Chloe Sevigny, Natasha Leon. I mean, it's like, how do you get that? You know? Who wrote the line, I'm not addicted to to drugs i'm addicted to glamour was that was that in the book or was that right it's a james st james line there's so many james said you know we're two <laughs> in a pod pity the pods you know <laughs> it's so good actually i'm gonna watch it again tonight i don't need any encouraging <laughs> um so congratulations on your book screen age um why did you decide to do it now because i just felt growing up i never knew i would go into tv and TV was never considered a thing anyone in their right minds should do. <laughs> and, and over the years, people have been so rude about TV. And then also realizing that the mediums or the genres of TV we work in are the least respected of all reality TV. I mean, documentaries are hot now, but they were considered the kiss of death not so long ago. Um, and loving televangelism and Tammy Faye, which is another sort of aspect of television that was deplored, and loving public access. I mean, that was our very first 
show that we ever made for ourselves. We made a, a public access show, and then the first series we ever made for Channel Four was all all based on public access. So, the long story short, I just suddenly began to think, gosh, why is it that people write, especially write about TV in such negative terms, and believing, coming to believe that actually the biggest cultural impact these forms have had the biggest cultural impact and changed things the most. It hasn't been the highfalutin dramas and the quality stuff, which is great, but it's that's not the stuff that's had the big impact and fundamentally changed who we are. And I think that that's what so-called trash TV has done. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a there's a snobbishness because I, I remember for me growing up when um, uh, you have Big Brother in America, don't you? Like that was my first time seeing a gay man be popular on television. That was people liked him so that was massive for me even though people would dismiss big brother as trash tv I, it wasn't for me as a teenager exactly and that the that's the other thing about tv is that we have been able to use it to become visible the queers and the trans and the freaks and and it's so all these kinds of people who've been deplored or excluded or judged or bullied by the so-called mainstream through tv we've been able to make ourselves visible and to be seen because i think in this day and age in the sort of media age we live in the way to kind of deny someone's existence is to refuse to let them be seen you know yeah. to treat them as if they're invisible and so it's really been a, a queer revolution because i was trying to think you know i was trying to think like it's so strange isn't it that like we're just so many gay things are on TV. I, I know Glad complains about representation, but actually it's not really, we're everywhere, you know, and pop culture is queer culture. It just is. And so I was sort of trying to figure that out in my head. Like, why is that the case? How has this happened? Although I still, it's, uh, if you look at like, um, the best actor Oscar nominees, you'll never see an out gay man in there. But yeah, in TV, you're definitely a lot more. Yeah, but I, you see, I think that's why there's been a power shift from movies to TV. And I think that movies were all about putting the stars on pedestals and not really getting to know them. And they still, in movies, they're still guarding this citadel of glamour and mystery and straightness. Um, whereas the gayest thing in the world. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, obviously, uh, the book is about TV changing lives and Drag Race has changed. I feel like it's changed the world. And, and personally, to me, it changed my life in terms of a fan. I do a weekly podcast uh, recapping Drag Race. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of my comedy writing that I do is writing for the queens from Drag Race. And I've even written jokes that have been on All Stars. So for me, it's had a huge impact on my life and has just created so many jobs, so many other industries. How long do you picture this going on? Do you think it's like a phenomenon that has a sell-by date or do you think it's uh, this is the door open now? I, I really believe it's, I mean, maybe I would say this, but I truly believe it's a door open. Like, I, I you know, Rainey and I were like um, watching these shows at the Pyramid and being inspired by them and just thinking, this is such great creativity and artistry this is amazing why isn't this in the culture why are we why do we have to go to a to a club on the outskirts of alphabet city you know this should be seen and heard and i think 
I think drag stars are like pop stars. And I love Hollywood actors, but to me, they're yesterday's news. And to me, drag is about the future. And um, I think in a way, and I talk about this a bit in the book, that a lot of drag culture has emerged from, well, I guess I would say this again, but like being a kid watching David Bowie and Top of the Pops and glam rock, you know, that was very drag inspired, I feel. Yeah. And that, you know, drag is the next evolution of that, the next uh, the next station along. So I, I think it's a drag, 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 drag world, you know, Vegas, mm-hmm. you know, where we have a show, Drag Race Live is in, in Vegas. Vegas is a city in drag, you know, it's like, and I think, I, I, yeah, I think it's the future. I mean, again, I would say that, and maybe we can talk in a few years, you'll call me up and say, Everybody stop watching Drag Race. So, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. But Well, I've I've been surprised because, I mean, I watched from literally episode one when it aired and I knew that I was exactly the person the show was targeting. But I've been surprised over the years. I have quite a few straight male friends who watch the show and I never thought that that was going to happen in my lifetime. And they watch it like the way they watch football. And it's to me that shocked me how much things have changed. But I love it. Well, you'll have to come come to DragCon in January. Uh, it's coming back to the UK, and um, it's the sixth, seventh, and eighth. But um, because you'll see, I don't know if you went to DragCon in the first DragCon in. I did, yeah. It's yeah, the gays we're there, but also the straights are there too. And and you know what's more, they're all welcome. It's like, and it's all intergener. You know, it's multi generational. You got grandparents, you got teenagers, you got kids. You know, it's like. And that's what I love about it. And I've, yeah, I'm totally with you. I've always believed that that drag is, I think drag is universally, you know, the, the challenges the queen faces, you know, being kicked out by their, of their home or being bullied or issues of addiction or being- Self-esteem. Like, yeah, these are yeah. LGBTQ problems. They're, they're issues that face everybody in their lives. But what a drag queen does rises to that challenge and transforms what could be tragedy into triumph with like so much humor that how can you resist that that's like to me that. <laughs> and um i don't know if you would like to answer questions like this but do you have an all-time favorite contestant no i mean yes i love every single 400 of them you can uh, a small answer <laughs> yeah i know i mean you know it's like you know it's like Sophie's choice. I couldn't possibly choose one of my babies. <laughs> what about a favorite season? Is that a bit less controversial? Well, I always like the most recent season. <laughs> <laughs> is that Drag Race UK? Because it's currently still on. <laughs> Drag Race UK is amazing. But, but you know what I, I do find really compelling and interesting is the way all the drag races are different. You know, Drag Race Canada is is really the Canadians were worried and they said, oh, we don't have any drag queens here. And I was like, yes, you do. And they were like, well, they've all gone to America, but you know, Canada or then Spain. Have you watched Drag Race Spain? I did watch a few episodes of the first season, but I'm really bad with subtitles, I must admit. Uh, yeah. I know I'm missing out because the on the IBM, how do you say, IMBD ratings, all the yeah. Spanish episodes are pretty much dominating the top 10, aren't they? Not that that really yeah. means anything, but I mean, they're very critically acclaimed, the Spanish episodes, so I know I'm missing out. 
And um, Drag Race Philippines also, like, yes. really... Um, Did you watch the first season of that? Yeah. So that, that's very different. Um, and obviously, I mean, I absolutely, as everyone did, loved the all-winner season, All-Star 7. Um, I did not think a non-elimination would work, but obviously it absolutely did. Do you think we will get another one, or is it too soon for oh, If I told you, I'd have to kill you. But... Um... <laughs> Please kill me. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things uh, at World of Wonder, Randy and Tom and Ruth, I think the idea is always that the show needs to keep reinventing itself. Kind of like a like a drag queen. The format itself is like a drag queen, you know, put it, trying on something different, twisting it up, you know, a twist on a twist, a wig on a wig, you know? Well, I hope we're going to get our UK All-Stars. I know we had Versus the World, but um, I think it's time now. There are a lot of queens. So, can you make your promise? <laughs> so, RuPaul says on the show, the final decision is hers to make. But I mm -hmm. believe that you and Randy also have major input. Have there ever been disagreements about who was going to be the winner or certain changes to the show that you could share? Um, no, not really, to be honest. But, I mean, I think... I mean, there's sort of one of the things we always, yes, it's a competition, but actually, and we really, you know, we tell the Queens, if you're on the show, you're a winner. You know, it's, it's, everyone's a winner. Um, and so it's not, it's not so much about the competition. And yes, the competition is the format and the structure, but everyone's a winner, baby. I mean, some of the fans, and I'm not excluding me, take it so seriously. I mean, some of the point systems have got so convoluted at this point. People are like, treat it like a proper sport, don't they? But you're right, it's not about that at the heart of it. Um, is there a moment from the show that um, particularly stands out that made you really proud? I think um, always, it will, there are many, 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 many moments, but I think the one that really, and I, I just, I honestly find it difficult to talk about, but um, is, uh, was Roxy and just the being abandoned by her mother at the bus stop, you know? I'm like, I have two, I have two kids, I uh, adopted kids. And just the idea of that happening to a child and a parent being able to do that to a child is so, I don't know. It just gets it gets me. And I write about it in the book because I think it's I think as queer people, we've we we are very, very good at having our shields up. You know, we've built our defenses up from whatever experiences we've been through growing up, being told that being gay is not good and not okay. And you know, look, even if you are raised in a supportive, loving environment, there's still a whole world out there where these negative messages are reinforced. So you're gonna so what I'm saying is, I think at the heart of every gay person is this sort of wound. Um, um, and I think when you think about it, actually, by extension, pretty much everyone has that wound too. You know, everybody feels like an outsider. And I think the importance of getting that message across to people is that, I think if we, you know, we're so focused on the mainstream, that actually what the mainstream is everybody feeling like an outsider that's the mainstream mm -hmm. and so 
I, I just think that's a really, it would just be a much better place if we all could uh, admit that, that we all feel like outsiders, queer or not. So that's why that moment just sort of, just goes to the heart of everything for me personally. Maybe it's not the, the same for, for you or other people, but it just, to, to me, it's like the sort of the very, the rawest point, you know, and the, it's almost unbearable when you put your finger on it. Cause it's like, I get a little emotional and teary, you know. Well, I've, I've cried many times at Drag Race. I mean, for me, the moment that, that always stood out to me, and it was so early on, was when Angina shared her status in season one. And it's it was when I realized, because I was already loving the show and entertained, but I was like, oh no, this show is is more than I thought it was. This is like, I someone's completely bearing their soul on the television. And I'm like, that's when I realized it was just even better than I thought it was. It's... um. And you know what? I think that's always been the the genius to a Rue that, you know, fabulous drag queen, you know, high heels, super high wig, fabulous looks, and also real heart, always. And kind of like I think in the book, I say he had the wisdom of E.T. He really is like a magical person in that respect. Um, because he talks about things like, you know, feeling unloved and feeling unlovable and you know just the shit we all go through he talks about it in very clear direct terms and um i think randy and i meeting him in atlanta which i also write about uh, about in the book was a real sort of just one of those rare moments in life where you see something with absolute clarity you know oh my god rupaul is a huge star you know and, you know, we could have been wrong about that. I mean, I know we weren't, but we could have been wrong about it. But it, it was just, it was just so clear to us. And, and Randy and I at the time were forming in Atlanta as we had a band, the Pop-Tarts, and, and Rue introduced us to go on stage. And it was like, after that, we were like, mm, we're not stars, he's a star, you know? <laughs> it was like... When I read about um, early Rue, it reminds me of, because I'm a massive Madonna fan, reading about early Madonna, where oh, it yeah. seemed as if there was no option. Like, they they believed they were stars before they even were. It was just... Exactly. A that is exactly right. You know, Madonna, I, I, Oprah Winfrey, too. Mm -hmm. And um, not to promote someone else's book here, but um, have you got Matthew Rettenman's um, Encyclopedia Madonica? I have actually, yes. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just completely obsessed with Madonna. I find it really hard as a Madonna fan these days because she's getting more criticism than she has in my lifetime. And I spend all my time defending her, even sometimes when I know I think they have a point. But to me, Madonna's like religion, so I find it very hard to... <laughs> well, Matthew has a brilliant line. He says, you know, people who are... So it's something, I'm going to mangle it, but it's something, he talks about the idea that we don't discuss people being irrelevant if they're irrelevant, you know, and all this talk about Madonna being irrelevant, like, yeah, she's relevant still, always. And um, I don't know, I write about Madonna quite a bit in the book because I think Vogue was such a milestone moment. And I always think that, also think that um, she is literally a gay man trapped in a woman's body and has because of that, been able to bring queer ideas right into the heart of the mainstream in a way that, say, a, an openly gay queer pop star would have had difficulty doing that, you know? Well, I think people forget that Madonna 
has taken a lot of beatings over the years on behalf of other people. And they look back and think, oh, with Vogue, she took queer culture and monetized it. I was like, you, it's missing the point of what Madonna was doing. I think Madonna was like taking huge risks by featuring gay people in Absolutely. her work and stuff like that. So. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, we could talk about, we could have a whole nother episode just talking about Madonna. You um, don't want to get me started on Madonna. I think she's so important. And I think like, you know, there's a whole chapter in a book on Maplethorpe and Wojnarowicz, these two artists who really pushed the boundaries in terms of queer sexuality and art. And I think that, you know, I see them as part of a piece of Madonna's work and that Madonna was able to mainstreamize a lot of their radical, so-called unacceptable ideas. You know, she just did it. Just amazing. And yeah. I think in 10 years time, the conversation about age will, she'll be looked back on more fondly of stuff like that. Cause it's just like, she just kind of does the thing you're not supposed to do. And then it becomes but more acceptable. There's another aspect of this, which I think is that and I'm old enough to have seen it, you know, pop culture, I think when it came along, people thought it was just for teenagers. And that when you stop being a teenager, you would grow out of pop culture. But what's happened is that pop culture is the culture, number one. And number two, pop culture is queer culture. And that's why I wrote the book, to sort of, to name this, to say it, to point it out, because we're living in this very media queer saturated world and no one's really talking about it and and yes there's a lot of work to do and yes there's still a lot of oppression and bigotry at the same time though it's like a trojan horse you know queer people have kind of taken over the world yeah and you do have to like acknowledge your progress sometimes sometimes people think doing that is like insulting to what needs to be done but i think you can do both at the same time can't you no, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, would you ever want to be featured on Drag Race in the Makeover Challenge? I assume you've been asked before. <laughs> yeah, funny enough, you're very sweet. You wouldn't no, be I, asked. You would, you would be asked before. Um, <laughs> but um, probably not, to be honest. Like, I had my moment on stage, and it was really, Renny and I, when we did the Pop Tarts, it was really fun. But um, I, no. <laughs> you would have good features for drag <laughs> i have done i have done i think there's a picture in the book of me and randy in drag so <laughs> we you know we did it at wigstock a couple of times and um is there ever a plan for if rupaul was i mean she missed an episode recently of, U of uk if she ever was to stop doing drag race would there be a former would a potential former contestant take over or michelle visage <laughs> Michelle Versailles. For me. Like showgirls. Michelle Versailles is already a pusher. <laughs> no. Love Michelle. Adore Michelle. Um, I don't know. I mean, Rue is so integral to the show. You know, it's the, the DNA of the show is Rue, Rue's DNA. So yeah i think what you said earlier about it, I think it's so easy to imagine a drag race being made and not having heart. It could have easily not been that. And I do think that it's uh, probably because of Rue that it's that that different kind of show. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and also like, um, I think by his example, some of the other versions, all the other versions actually have been able to find that heart, even if Rue's not hosting them, you know, because Rue hosts um, the English speaking versions. Um, and then, you know, 
in other countries, they've also been able to find find the heart. But Brooklyn's been amazing. Her, she's really yeah. um, grown into it. Um, are there any uh, guest judges that you would like to see on Drag Race UK that we haven't had yet? Because right. I mean, we've seen so many. You know, it's been a life's work to secure Madonna. So who knows? Who knows? Does Madonna want to do it? I don't know. You're, next time you speak to her, will you ask her? I have met her once. Have you met her? I've not, actually. I mean, been sort of in adjacent spaces. <laughs> she was um, funny and a bitch, so everything oh, I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Matthew, um, in, he calls her the most user-unfriendly pop star. And I think that's just so brilliant, because <laughs> love her too, you know. And... Um, one of my favorite stories is um, being at the pyramid during happy hour and Martin Burgoyne came in and I didn't know who Martin was. I, I'd only been in New York, uh, you know, maybe a few weeks. And he is this graphic artist and he had this cover of this record with this person on it and he was showing it to people. And it was the cover of Madonna's first album. No. And I, I was like, who's she? I had no idea. Like, because nothing had been released yet. So that was a pretty epic moment. And Randy actually went to see her performing at Danceteria with her brother as one of the dancers. And I don't know who the other one was. Just It was just Madonna, two dancers and a backup tape. And Randy said, oh, come, let's go. And it was Sunday night. And I was like, no, I'm too tired. So I missed, I missed an epic moment. But Randy saw her. Yeah. That was when she used to go into the club and just force the DJ to play her tapes, didn't she? Yes, yes. well, Mark Kamins was the DJ and I think he produced the first single or Jelly Bean Benitez, I can't remember, but yeah, yeah it was all, it was like that, it was like her sort of uh, Genesis moment, you know? <laughs> Sorry, I was getting carried away. But because um, you're talking about all the TV <laughs> shows that have changed the world and changed you personally, which are the TV shows at the moment that you are um, particularly obsessed with what in terms of watching or that we make that you don't make oh, oh well that's if there are any left if there are any um well no i'm actually um i am watching Lo Lo white lotus me too uh, i love it <laughs> i love i love season one i'm still like getting into the flow of season two exactly the same i'm also watching the crown and i have some sort of interesting i'm it's like I don't know, is it just too close that we know all the events? I don't know. I don't know. But I've loved The Crown. I love The Crown. I don't really like it. I, I do watch it just for the acting, so I think it's well acted, but I don't think the show is that great. But <laughs> um, What else? Um, I was just, my my kid, Seven, um, watched this, found this movie, Six-Headed Shark Attack. Have you ever <laughs> heard of it? No. It's a franchise. It's like, the, it started off with two-headed shark attack and then three-headed, four-headed, literally, there are movies. You're making this up. <laughs> I'm not making it up. No, I was like, and um, we watched over the weekend, six-headed shark attack. And yes, it's about a six-headed shark that's some sort of mutant thing that attacks people. I mean, it's hilariously uh, cheap, um, but I- I'm look this up now, this sounds too good. <laughs> I know, I really was like, oh my gosh. Um, but I mean, I guess that's sort of, that's the point of the book, that low culture or trash culture is, in fact, really culturally impactful. You know, and I think even talking about Madonna, like she has used camp as a as a way to really change the world. And I just think that 
sometimes TV <laughs> popular culture are, are sort of dismissed as as not being worthy of thinking about or writing about. And that's really why I wrote Screen Age, you know, to to say, you know, how television changed our reality. I don't think anyone's denying um, the importance of Drag Race these days. So I don't think you have to worry about that. Um, I'm so happy I got to talk to you. It's been such a pleasure, I can't tell you, and such an honor. So- Lovely to you, thank you for, thank and I love, love chatting about, gossiping about Madonna. I could, if you ever want to talk about Madonna, please get in touch with me or anything else. <laughs> yeah, a support group. We'll start a support group. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank and you. best of luck with the book. Thank, Thank you. you. United Queendom.